You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast made possible by our members. We recorded most of this episode on the 2nd of November, but we're just re-recording this introduction on Friday night, the 3rd of November. And that's because it's just been announced that the payments company Klarna has signed a collective agreement with two trade unions, Unionen and the Swedish Engineers Union, thereby averting the strike action that you'll hear us talk about later in the episode. We'll also discuss an ongoing strike at Tesla. We'll look into why businesses and trade unions both fear that new salary requirements for work permit holders will undermine the Swedish labour market model. We'll examine how an oil spill and new fishing quotas have put the Baltic Sea in focus this week. We'll talk about an ill-tempered battle for control of Sweden's Green Party and how it gets to the heart of an identity crisis for a party that has failed to hit the heights of its counterparts elsewhere in Europe. And finally, we'll chat about terrible opinion poll results for several small parties in Sweden and what it means for their leaders' futures. I'm your host, Paul Amani, and I'm joined today by our regular panellists, James Savage, who's with me here in Stockholm, and Richard Orange, who is calling in today from Gdansk in Poland. Richard, what are you doing in Gdansk? Well, it's, it's Hustluv, the uh, autumn school break. And because we didn't go anywhere in the summer, my wife felt the kids deserved to go somewhere outside Sweden. So we got the ferry on, what was it, after school on Friday? Mm-hmm. And from Karlskrona, and we've Airbnb'd our flat in Malmo. So after the weekend, I couldn't actually go home. So I've been working from here, which has okay. actually worked. Work, it's been it's been working really well. I mean, I, it's a, it's an amazing. I mean, for me, it's an amazing city. It's got, it's got this amazing like medieval uh, Hanseatic waterfront with this great harbour crane and big merchant houses everywhere, which I I think is fascinating because it's mm. like it, it was the biggest Hanseatic port in this. 16th century and stuff it's a huge it's a huge place and what's a bit sad is that it's all basically a reconstruction so they rebuilt it after the second world war because it was completely flattened so i i I mean i've just i've just found it really interesting just finding out about it and they've got an amazing second world war museum which is really harrowing you kind of walk out it's a bit like auschwitz or something you sort of walk out stunned at the just the scale of the destruction yeah yeah and i've been to skidansk it's an amazing place james how are you i happen to know that you were at a halloween party because i follow you on uh, social 
media and <laughs> your costume was uh, amazing. Can you tell <laughs> it, it really was. Can you tell listeners what you went as? Well, I was quite I I had I took me it took me ages to figure out. It was kind of a last minute thing, but I went as um if anyone knows the video of I want to break free with Queen, I went as Freddie Mercury at the at the beginning of that video where he's um, dressed in fishnet stockings and a wig and, and, and a moustache. <laughs> so, you know, I went I, I went with the fake moustache, the, the fishnet stockings, the mini skirt and um, the wig. Yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah, I, I went into the office last week and the first thing you said was, I'm just popping out to get some fishnet stockings. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go to, 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 to a fairly dodgy <laughs> outlet in Stockholm to get them. It was uh, um, amid all the sex toys, though. I found, found my fishnet stockings. That's another story. That's one for the memoirs. <laughs> Let's start with the new work permit rules, which came into effect this week and which we've discussed several times on this podcast. The Swedish press actually covered the story quite a bit more this week than they have been doing. And one angle that's getting a lot of attention is how the new salary threshold risks undermining the Swedish model of collective bargaining that has served the country so well for so long. Before we get into the criticisms, uh, James, can you just briefly tell us about the Saltrebaden agreement that was signed in 1938 and is still in force today? So it's named after this seaside town in Stockholm where it was signed. It's a lovely place called Saltrebaden with a with a lovely big hotel, um, classic hotel by the waterfront. And that is where the unions representing the, the workers, um, sort of working class workers, mm. LO, and then what was then called Svenska Arbejdsgiverförening, which, which is uh, now effectively uh, Svensk Näringsliv. Yeah. So representing, and they represented the employers. They met there and they agreed to norms for the labour market. And the purpose of this was to keep the government out of the labour market as much as possible, to give, obviously to give workers better conditions, at least from the point of view of, of, of LO. And to, but, to, but what the incentive for this for the employers was basically to keep the government out of the labour market mm. so that conditions on the labour market and the rules of the labour market would as far as possible be decided between employers and employees uh, represented by their unions. And that effectively is still the system today. Mm. The, the, the Saltwebadsavtalet, uh, the Saltwebaden Agreement, is still in force, and and that's why today the conditions on the labour market, uh, in at least large companies, and um, in the public sector, the unions and employers' organisations negotiate the broad shape of uh, labour relations. Yeah. And you mentioned um, Svens Neringsliv there, and we had an article this week talking about how they, the, the Swedish Confederation of Enterprise, as they're called in English, they think that the government's new salary threshold for work permit holders risks undermining this 85-year-old agreement. So what are their arguments? Well, Karin Johansson, the Confederation's deputy chief, was absolutely scathing about the new work permit threshold. She called it an irresponsible experiment beset with major risks, which mm. she said was all about just scoring political PR points rather than being a thought-through programme to sort of boost employment or growth. So she was really scathing about it. And when it comes to the Swedish model, I think her argument is that the majority of collective agreements that have been signed between unions and employers actually have a minimum salary which is lower than the 27,000 kroner minimum salary for a work permit, which means yeah. that businesses might have to offer labour migrants if they want them to come, if they want to hire internationally, higher wages than they pay their Swedish counterparts for the same job. And they reckon that this might have unforeseen consequences for the labour market model. Yeah. 
and she also said that for the unions that, that this year there's already be, they've already agreed substantial cuts to real wages because they want to keep inflation under control. But if businesses would then go and hire people on higher wages than they've agreed to, mm. then it undermines the whole process of wage negotiations. And I mean that that's the argument in her article. But I think more fundamentally. What both the unions and what what the confederation is worried about, what employers are worried about, is that mm. it just breaks the rule that politicians should not take decisions on wages and that the government should not interfere in wage setting. So it violates the Salkhubaden agreement. And she yeah. didn't say, but I suppose the risk is that once you do that, you could open a Pandora's box and you could have people saying, well, if, if we can have a minimum wage for foreign workers, why can't we have one for Swedish workers? You know, once the rule that politicians shouldn't interfere in the labor in, in wage setting is broken, then then, you know, any anything could happen. Yeah. And the trade union movement has been a bit more divided than business organizations. So ELU, the biggest trade union confederation, gave the government its backing, whereas TCO, the Swedish Confederation of Professional Employees, has voiced its opposition to the new regulations. So why are the trade unions more split on this than the business organisations? Well, the trade unions represent different groups. So ELO represents a lot of people in low-paid jobs. It's the it's the sort of, you might call it the sort of working-class union confederation. Yeah. So it, rep- it, it represents um, people in less skilled jobs, in uh, working in working in lower-paid sectors. And they are more concerned about wage dumping, effectively. Mm. They, they're concerned that low-wage labour from abroad undercuts the wages of their members. TCO, on the other hand, represents white-collar workers. And so it isn't as motivated by the concerns of the lower paid, but it is motivated by protecting the Salkhubaden agreement. And so I suppose for ELO, the, the concerns about wage dumping trump Mm. They're concerns about violating the spirit, at least, of right. the Salkhubaden agreement. Uh, whereas TCO is just about protecting uh, protecting the rights of unions and employers to set the rules of the labor market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So as, as you mentioned earlier, the Swedish model has led to stability on the labour market, meaning that strikes are rare in Sweden. But this week, we've seen two high-profile examples of industrial action that illustrate how the tech sector in Sweden now finds itself on the front lines of labour battles, defining the tech sector quite broadly if we start with Elon Musk's electric car company Tesla first. So Tesla workers in Sweden went on strike just over a week ago. What can you tell us about this story? Well, it, it's apparently the first ever strike against Tesla anywhere in the world. So it's it's making kind of union history. And 
Tesla is not, I don't think, going to budge very easily at all. And apparently it sort of just doesn't do collective bargaining agreements. Don't know mm. if that's something Elon Musk, part of his like libertarian beliefs, but apparently it just doesn't do them. Mm. None of its 120,000 employees anywhere in the world are covered by collective bargaining agreements. And in February, it actually fired 30 workers at one of its US gigafactories simply for sort of union organizing. So Tesla is probably going to try and fight this one out. And the thing is that Sweden's unions aren't going to budge either. And the manufacturing union EF Metal has been trying to get a collective bargaining agreement with Tesla apparently for five years. And I think once they've lost patience and started strike action, they're not going to back down until they get one. And EF Metal's representative, Veli Pirkasekula, he said on Tuesday that the union was extending the strike to four additional workshops. And that means that by November 10th, there'll be strikes at, I think, 17 workshops across the country. And in some ways, that's tiny compared to, you know, a big rail strike or a big health worker strike. It's only, I think, about 120 mechanics who work directly at Tesla's Swedish subsidiary who are union members. And then I think if they extend the strike to all repair shops that do service Tesla cars, it's still only another 450 staff. So it's, you know, a few hundred people who will be on strike. But of course... That will be a pain for people who own Teslas in Sweden. And Tesla was the biggest selling car, I think, so far this year, or at least it was in August. And they'll find it hard to repair their cars. And I think it also makes it hard to for Tesla to sell new cars because I, I believe that mechanics needed to put the number plates on, amongst other things. Mm. And the problem for Tesla is that for Sweden's unions, it's not just about those 400 workers. It's about principles, especially an industrial company. I think maybe they're a bit looser on companies like Klan. I'm not sure. But if you're an industrial company, you are supposed to have a collective agreement. And if you don't, they're going to have a a strike until you do. And and that happened back in the 90s. In 1995, there's a famous case with the toy company Toys R Us, Mm. which for similar reasons refused to sign a collective agreement and was eventually, after a few months of really hardcore strike action, was forced to back down. And there were sympathy strikes from other unions that cut off all of Toys R Us's rubbish collection, its postal deliveries, its bank payments. I mean, once you in Sweden, sympathy strikes are legal, which they're not in many other countries, so right. long as the original strike is legal. And that means that they can pretty much close down a business. I mean, it's very hard to keep doing business in Sweden if if you have all of the unions against you. And there was a report last week that Tesla's Nordic lead, Kim Jensen, had discussed bringing in strike breakers. And this, um, right. the newspaper Dagens Arbeid had screenshots of some of his messages where he's talking about, about doing this. And that is unheard of in Sweden. It hasn't happened since the 20s. And if Tesla went ahead and did something like that, you would get as almost every union would would strike would would call sympathy strikes, and um, indeed Sweden's transport union has already done this and says they will refuse refuse to unload Tesla cars at four of Sweden's ports from next Friday. Right. So I think it's going to be really interesting. It's it's going to be one of the one of the sort of key union battles for the of the decade. And even Ulf Christensen, who represents the pro market moderate party, was out saying he this week that he expected Tesla to behave according to the traditions of the Swedish labor market, which basically means, come on, guys, sign a collective agreement, I think. And it, I think if it blows up like Toys R Us, you'll also get the point people in Sweden won't want to buy Teslas. No, I, I think it's going to get really bad. And I think Tesla will have to back down or maybe pull out of Sweden. And I don't know what happens if they do that. Maybe they can't pull out yeah, of Sweden. They can't pull out of Sweden. Yeah, I, I don't know what they'll do. It, it's it's be, uh, It'd be really interesting to see what will happen.
Yeah, definitely. And another company is the payments giant Klarna. And this is a story we've covered on the podcast before, and we'll link in the notes to our interview earlier this year with the head of the union club there, Sen Kanner, about the roots of the conflict. But can you tell us, James, how the dispute has played out over the past few days and what's likely to happen next? So, uh, Swedish trade unions, Unionen, and engineers of Sweden, or Sveriges Ingenjöra, they walked out of talks with Klarna last week, warning that they would strike unless the company signs a collective bargaining agreement. If an agreement is not reached by 10.30am on November the 7th, members of the two unions will walk out at Klarna's head office in Stockholm. We don't know how many people that will be, but 2,000 people work at Klarna. Three unions, Akademiker Verbundet SSR, DIEK, which is for people working in the creative sector, and Naturvietana, which is a scientist's trade union, have said that they will go out in sympathy strikes unless the parties manage to come to an agreement. However, there's one union, Akavia, which represents lawyers and economists, which is not joining the strike, saying that they would that their members would rather they continue discussions with the company. So it's unclear now how many people this is going to affect, but it has obviously has the potential to cause significant disruption for Klarna. Okay, uh, thanks uh, both for giving us the latest on those stories and we'll link in the show notes to our related articles. Our sponsor again this week is Stockholm Academic Forum, the organiser of Stockholm Explorative Talks, an event taking place this coming Thursday, the 9th of November. That's completely free to attend. And this year's theme of polarisation versus pluralism is sure to throw up fascinating discussions. And attendees will also have the pleasure of seeing you, James, curate the last session of the day. Yes, indeed. I am asking the questions for the President's session, where the heads of five higher education institutions will be discussing what they can do to help reverse the negative trend of increased segregation in Stockholm. So I think it's going to be extremely interesting, and I'd really encourage people to come along if they can. Yeah, I agree. It sounds great. And I'm actually going to try and make it along to watch if we get our podcast done on time that day. And uh, for any of our listeners who'd like to attend, there's a link in the episode notes where you can sign up. And again, it's completely free of charge. Let's turn our attention to the Baltic now. And we'll start with a passenger ferry that ran aground and caused an oil spill near Karlshamn in southern Sweden on the 22nd of October. What's the latest on that story, Richard? Has the ferry been salvaged yet? And how bad is the oil spill? Um, it's happening as we speak, which is Thursday morning. Um, mm. The Coast Guard said last night that tugboats would start moving the ferry towards Carlsham at 8am and that the operation should be over by midday. So by the time this podcast is out, it should be back in the dock and yep. being repaired. So yeah, it, it was pulled away from the rocks yesterday where it had run aground most recently. And um, then it was pushed by a tugboat to a site just outside a harbour called Hervik, which is quite near Carlsham. Uh, so yeah, it's, it doesn't have an enormous distance to go. And it, it's not a massive oil spill. The damaged tank held about 160 cubic metres of oil, of which I think about 50 cubic metres has already been swept up and mm. to put that in perspective you know the biggest oil spill ever was 780,000 cubic meters so i don't know how many 
I can't do the maths, but it's like, you know, 160 divided by... So it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger oil spill. Um, you, you do uh, the I math. should probably ignore that one. I can't do the mental <laughs> math. <laughs> but some of the remaining oil has reached land, but most of it remains at sea. And the challenge is to kind of keep it offshore and hoover up as much of it as possible before it hits the beaches of Blekinger and Skorna and northern Skorna. So so that's um, what's happening right now. They're, they're, they're doing a big oil collecting operation. That's where we're at. So staying with the Baltic, the European Commission wanted member states to stop the targeted fishing of herring due to depleted stocks. But when EU fisheries ministers met last week, they opted not to adopt the proposal. What can you tell us about this, James? Well, the European Commission argues that herring stocks in the Baltic are dangerously uh, dangerously low levels, and they therefore wanted all fishing to stop to allow them to recover. Even some small-scale coastal fishermen were arguing for this moratorium. Yeah. Although the large-scale trawler fishermen from the other side of Sweden, mostly often based in Gothenburg, but who were fishing in the Baltic, Baltic Sea, were against. Sweden's agriculture minister, Peter Kulgrin, though, said that a ban would be too great a blow to Sweden's food production and to the coastal culture. So the result was a cut in quotas, but not a total ban. And the Green Party described the decision to keep fishing for herring as incomprehensible, perhaps unsurprisingly. But uh, we're going to talk now about why the party remains one of Sweden's smallest, despite running for elections in a country that's home to Greta Thunberg, and where 17% of the electorate said in a recent survey that climate change was the single most important political issue facing the country. And that put it at the top of the list, like just ahead of law and order and immigration. But before we get into that, let's start with an introduction to the Greens. Who founded the party and when? It was founded by Per Garton, who was a Liberal Party MP. He died earlier this year, actually. But he was very much on the left of his party. So, And the environment was just one of many issues he was engaged in. So he was a Eurosceptic. He was a passionate advocate of, for the Palestinian cause. He was into, you know, humane prisons. And in the late 70s, he became part of the anti-nuclear, of the campaign against nuclear power. Right. So he founded the Green Party after his side lost in Sweden's nuclear power referendum in 1980. And in a similar way to, you know, the way like the Brexit party was started in the UK, he realised that he could take this movement that had built up during the referendum, even though they lost it and use it to launch a new party. Mm. And so it launched formally in 1981, but it only really started taking off after the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. And then it got into parliament, I think, in 1988. They've got an unorthodox leadership structure, don't they, whereby they always have two leaders, uh, one woman and one man, who they refer to as spokespeople. Where does that come from? The, a literal translation from språkra would be language tubes but <laughs> <laughs> but spokespeople yes uh, so they have two they have two spokespeople um, a male and a female and i think what what they wanted to do there are, there are a couple of reasons behind that behind this and a couple of reasons why they're called spokespeople and not joint leaders so the idea is that it's a that the green party is a collective movement that policy is decided by the party as a whole and the leaders themselves or rather the spokespeople themselves simply articulate what the party has decided. And so it's, it's very much a, a sort of philosophical decision to, to, right. have, to, have, to have two spokespeople rather than one leader. It's anti-hierarchical, it's anti-patriarchal. 
And the anti-patriarchal side of it is also why they have uh, a male and a female leader. So to promote equality, there's the idea that two people should share the work. The Greens are very much all about work-life balance and um, they're they're in favour of shorter working hours for Mm. ordinary people. So to have two people sharing the load of of being the the effective leader of the party Mm. um, is also consistent with that. And the latest uh, male spokesperson or language tube, uh, Per (laughs) Boland, stepped down recently and the battle is on for who should lead the party together with Merta Stenevi. And this has been in the news a lot recently because of palpable tension in the relationship between Stenevi and her would-be co-pilot Daniel Heldean. What can you tell us, Richard, about the personalities involved and their competing views on the future of the party? Well, they're both extremely strong personalities. It was interesting, this Politiken podcast from Svenska Dagbladet that I that I think is excellent if you if you speak Swedish, but they um uh they said that what's most striking about them is how similar they are in that they're both kind of an odd fit for the Green Party. They're both very smart power players who've managed to sort of, like Stenevi was not the choice. when She she was appointed to lead the party as, as the secretary of the party in 2019. And, and the, the leaders at the time were against her doing that, mm. but she managed to canvass with the members and get voted in anyway. So right. she's uh, she's a real operator and, you know, had, had quite a good career in business before she joined the party. So she's also a lot of Greens initially viewed her sceptically because she was seen mm. as too too businessy, too much of a marketing professional. And right. similarly with Daniel Hildean, he's 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 viewed with suspicion by a lot of the party because he's seen as a as a right winger who uh, went into coalition with the right wing parties in Stockholm. Yeah. Uh, but but in terms of the fu- their views of the future of the party, what it basically boils down to is that Stenevi believes that the party should have policies on everything, you know, like the Social right. Democrats or the moderates, with a spokesman in every poli- spokesperson in every policy area. Right. Whereas Hildean, although he's not saying this now because he's trying to get there, <laughs> get get voted in as Sprockler, but he's now saying that that he, he believes that it should focus more narrowly on climate and the environment. Right. So in Stockholm, you know, he didn't go for education or something. He went for transport and brought in lots of pedestrian precincts and, you mm. know, emission zones and things like that. And th- this reflects a tendency that there's been within the party pretty much from the beginning. As I said before, you know, Per Garten was interested in all sorts of things. He wasn't yeah. just a, a green campaigner. I interviewed Stine before the election and she argued that if you just focus narrowly on the environment, then you give voters a choice. You say, you know, either you vote for us and it's just a vote on fixing climate change, or mm. if you want better schools or better healthcare or a just society, you need to vote for someone else. And she said, right. you know, that that's a, giving voters a choice that they shouldn't have to make. The position that Stenevi has also tends to sort of force the Greens to stay on the left of, of, of politics, because right. if you have you know, liberal left positions on migration, integration and crime, then it makes it that much harder to go into coalition with the right wing parties, which which the, I mean, the Greens historically have done a lot of agreements with the right wing parties, like they did a big migration pact with the uh, Alliance government in in the 2000s. Previously, they've they've tended to sort of play both sides. But more recently, they've become more and more sort of fixed on the left side of politics. And, and I think if you're on the Heldian side, you say, well, the only policy area that voters rate the Greens on, the only area where the Greens score higher than the other parties on their policies is the environment. So right. 
strategically, it makes sense to just double down on that. But I think it's not just that. I think it's also if you are a kind of true believer, if you kind of believe in what the science says, if you think that if we don't reduce emissions, climate change will cause you know catastrophic damage mm. to the environment, which will basically affect every other every other area. You know, it will crash the economy. It's not going to be just a, a, a narrow issue. It's going to affect everything. If you really believe that, then you think any time spent on other issues is kind of time wasted. There's a sort of sense of urgency among some Greens that mm. sort of makes it feel like doing something about school meals just seems like a waste of time. Right. So an, an opinion poll you, Richard, reference in your politics column this week has the Greens on just 4.8%, which would uh, see them barely scraping over the 4% threshold required to enter the Swedish parliament. So as in Germany and Austria, the Greens are in government and they enjoy substantial support. So James, if we could turn to you, why are Sweden's Greens struggling so badly at a time of climate crisis and with a government that appears to be reducing Sweden's environmental ambitions? Well, that's the big question. I think that's what the Greens themselves are struggling to answer. I think if you if you looked at the Daniel Heldian side of the Green Party, they would say, because we're not focusing enough um, on environmental issues. One problem might be leadership. Uh, now, only 11% of people said they had confidence in Mette Stenevi in Novus's poll in September. So that was better than this centre party leader, Moharem Demirok, and it was better than Liberal leader, Johan Persson but pretty disastrous. And also I think, you know, people put people who place climate and environment as their top priority may not all be drawn to the Greens. 28% of people say that they are the best there, but other people have different views. So there are, and, and if you look at them, if you look at the, um, at the arguments that the moderates and people on the right are putting forward, they're saying that what well, we need in order to combat climate change, we need to be able to build out nuclear power stations. Now, the Greens are very much an anti-nuclear party. So people, for people who buy that argument, they might say that environmental policies are most important for them, but they think that the others have, have got a better solution. So it's a combination of factors. Richard, the opinion poll you brought up in your column also made for alarming reading for the government. So as you explained, the three parties that make up the coalition now have less support combined than the far-right Sweden Democrats. Uh, what do you put that down to? Well, I, th- I think it's really interesting because at least some people in the three government parties were hoping that because the government was adopting a lot of the Sweden Democrats' policies on immigration and crime, uh, immigration and crime that that would then meant, mean they'd lose support after the election because people think, well, this is happening anyway. I don't need to vote for the Sweden Democrats. I can get the same result if I vote for the moderates. And 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 in, in in Denmark, that's pretty much what happened. You know, the Danish People's Party's support was literally decimated after the Social Democrats adopted their migration policies. The Finns in Finland and the Progress Party in Norway, they've all also lost support after they made their big breakthrough and in both cases joined a government coalition. But in Sweden, it's the exact opposite that's happened. And support for the Sweden Democrats is now as high as ever while support for the moderates is nearing the kind of disaster levels it saw in the 2002 election, which is what, you know, they, and after that, they completely revamped their policy and went to the centre under Reinfeldt, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's partly because Jimmy Jorkson, the party's leader, is still in position. He's still pretty young. He could he could carry on for another 30 years, you know. And I think a lot of the weakened votes in these other countries were often linked with succession issues and leadership changes. And I think it's also the strange arrangement the party has under the Tito 
agreement where they have civil servants in government, they can kind of help craft policy, and they can also announce policy at press conferences alongside government ministers, but they're still outside government. So they have this kind of, they kind of have the best of both worlds. They can take all the credit or a lot of the credit for some of these kind of tough on crime or tough on migration policies. But when things go wrong, they don't have to take much of the responsibility. So, for example, when if you look at um, Sweden not being able to meet its its climate goals, you know that's largely because of the Sweden Democrats' policies on on fuel. But it's uh, Romina Pumaktori who has to be the face of it. So I think where it's controversial and where there's difficulties and where the public aren't in favour of what the government policies is, the Sweden Democrats often aren't present. You know, they kind of they're, they're nowhere to be seen. So I think they get all the credit, but very little of the responsibility. I think that's tra- that's traditionally seen as something that parties who are outside of the government, but uh, on which the government is dependent, can do well with. And the centre party support was very, very strong at that point in time. Now, when that arrangement collapsed, the um, support for the centre party fell. So perhaps a danger for the Sweden Democrats here might be that if the government collapsed and they saw that and, and their voters saw that their policies weren't getting through. But there's no sign of that at the moment. Uh, can I just ask a quick question about the other small parties? Because I've looked, I read another opinion poll this morning, a new Ipsos poll that put the the Liberals on 2%, which are the sort of disastrous levels that Niamco Sabuni was on when she was forced out of the party. And the Christian Democrats are on just 3%. So if you just get your crystal balls out, do you think either of those leaders, Johan Parshon of the Liberals or Ebba Bush of the Christian Democrats, will they survive to the next election? It's it's when they're in government, it is the, the bar for changing the leader, I think, is a little higher often. So the Liberals change leader not that long ago. Swedish parties don't change leaders generally very often. But these are crisis figures for them and they ha- and, 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 and something has to be done. Let, let's also look at the centre party, which is outside government. They are, they're having a terrible time of it at the moment in the polls as well, hovering under the 4% threshold in, in some polls and just over in others. So I think there are a few party leaders who whose positions are somewhat precarious. I'd say that Maharam Demirok of the Centre Party is perhaps the one whose position is most precarious right now. Even though he's newest in the job. Even though he's newest in the job. But uh, I think, I think you know, the, 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 the figures, that, the figures that, um, that, that they're seeing are pretty disastrous. And um, the fact that they're not in government perhaps makes it slightly easier to change. Although, you know, it's, of course it's possible that both Ebba Bush and Yuan Pershon could end up um, paying the price. No, no doubt about it. I mean, I think one thing you would say for Ebba Bush and Johan Persson is that they have, at points in time, managed to attract reasonable success. I mean, they, you know, Johan Persson managed to take the party from a position under the 4% threshold before the election to getting over the thre- threshold at the election. Ebba Bush has led their party to success before. So there, there is perhaps some hope in their parties that they might be able to replicate that in the future, that all is not lost. I think the problem for Demirok is there wasn't really ever a bounce from him. And, and so he might, be in, he, he might be in trouble at some point. I wouldn't bet on any of those three surviving to the election, but I wouldn't bet on them being ousted either. I, I would say that in a way, I think Ebba Bush is in some ways the most vulnerable of those three because she's she puts so much political capital into the election on on the sort of position she took and what she did to the party that she took the party to the right 
she's quite tarnished. I don't think the voters are going to... She, she's seen as somebody who you can't trust. She's lost trust with the voters. And I think the, the, the Social Democrats have very successfully hammered down on that over and over and over again on and blamed her for lots of the things that the government didn't get through. She, she's an extremely skillful politician and she may be able to turn things around and you know, revive, uh, win back trust and and sort of just be so kind of entertaining and a good enough speaker that people will forget that. But I wouldn't bet on it. And and, and I think that the, the, the patience in the Christian Democrats is probably, I think there's co- probably quite a few people in the Christian Democrats who are thinking, is my time now, you know, uh, which I, I'm not sure is the case for Persian. I'm not sure anybody wants to take over the Liberals right now. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, no, indeed. I guess, I guess one thing that, that allies of Pershon and Bush um, will be saying right now is, look, it's it, this is a we're now entering midterm for a government. Governments tend to have difficulties midterm. They tend to do poorly in the polls. But when uh, when when voters get closer to the election, they focus a bit more on the issues, and um, it's possible then for governments to. Uh, to, to recover, and you know, the, and and the, and for the Christian Democrats and the Liberals, you know, there'll be plenty of things they can do in government um, that that will that, that they will be able to point to to voters and say, look, we did that, and it, it, this was this was this was governing in your interests. That will be what they're hoping for. But whether their own parties will give them the time, well, that remains to be seen. Okay, let's leave it there for this week uh, and we'll link to Richard's politics column in the notes and to all other related articles. Thank you for listening and do make sure to follow the podcast in your app of choice to get it delivered fresh every Saturday. Our panellists today were James Savage and Richard Orange. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next week with another episode of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.